From the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, the apostle Paul writes to encourage us. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then, you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life in, through his spirit who lives in you. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we rejoice for you are the God of life. You have brought dead bones back to life. You have taken a, 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 a solid, callous heart and given it the ability to beat once again through the power of your spirit. But Lord, will you lead us not to grieve that spirit, not to wound what you have created and recreated in us. So through this message, you bless Pastor Jeff with the ability to encourage us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear how we are now alive because of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome this morning. I just want to reiterate, we are doing that prayer service, four o'clock today, and as many of you can, come out. Join us. It is going to be a good time of just reinvigorating your heart in prayer. I'll be here. The pastors will be here. Some of our elders will be here. I want to encourage you to come out to that. If you have your Bible, you can open to that passage, Romans 8. We're going to be in 1 through 11-ish, 1 through 13 today. Um, I have a friend who is missing both his arms and both his legs. He used to own a billboard company. And one day... When he was up changing out a billboard, he has an instrument. It is about a 25, 30-foot long pole that he uses to change those messages out on the billboards. And he was in a hurry. Normally, he's a safety freak. But he was in a hurry one day. He was getting a little blustery outside, and he was unaware of the power line above his head and behind him. And when his pole hit that power line, it quite literally blew his arms, and his legs off. Later, he was confined to an electric-driven uh, wheelchair, and I was talking to him a couple of years after that tragedy had happened. He was a believer. He was in good spirits. He didn't blame anyone for it. He didn't blame God. He didn't blame the electricity. He didn't blame the power line or the power company. He just knew this was a situation that he was in. Power, normally, is a good thing. Power is a good thing. What, when disaster strikes and we suddenly find ourselves without it, we are reminded of its value very quickly. But raw, scorching, knocking you on your backside power can also be very deadly. The same fire that warms us can burn our houses down. The same beaches that we enjoy, that surf can come up and wash our houses away. The same electricity that powers our homes can cause untold Damage And today, we must make no mistake about it. Romans chapter 8 is about the power of God to live the Christian life. And it is about one person who is God's power, the Holy Spirit. But we must not think of the Holy Spirit as a mere source of power. We must understand today, Paul is going to tell us several things. He's going to tell us some good things. As opposed to the bad news of chapter 7, he's going to introduce us to the good news of chapter 8. 
instead of living and languishing in the badlands of chapter 7, we're going to be living in this new land called Romans chapter 8. Paul is going to tell us in verses 1 through 11, he's going to tell us three things about the reality of our Christian freedom and the reasons. Number two, the reason for that freedom. And number three, the results of that freedom. Next week, we're going to look at the response to that freedom. What is the response that the Christian should have? But before we get into, a sub, into looking at Paul's primary subject today, before we get into looking at Romans 8 about the power of the Holy Spirit for the Christian life, we must first understand Paul's shift and this new topic of the Spirit and just how important he is. Up until this point, Paul has only mentioned the Holy Spirit four times, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 5, and 7, verse 6. But now Paul uses the word Spirit, Holy Spirit, 20 times in one chapter. So, folks, I want to tell you, Romans chapter 8 is about the power of God's Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Before we understand that, though, we have to first pause and understand, take a few minutes to be reminded of what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. First, Roman number, number one, if you're following along on your outline that's in your bulletin, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Remember our working definition we established a few weeks ago that God is the infinite personal creator of the universe. That's who God is. That's what God is. God is the infinite personal creator of the universe. All three of those words are critical in understanding the God of the Bible. And if the Holy Spirit is God, He has to have the attributes of the infinite personal creator, God. He has to share those attributes. And the Bible teaches that He does. The first thing we're going to look at here really quickly is the Spirit's attributes of personhood. The Spirit's attributes of personhood. The Spirit, uh, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit He's spoken as a being who is, has a capacity for love and compassion. Romans 15.30 says, the love of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's love toward us. Also, the Bible affirms that He expresses comfort and advocacy. John 14.16-17 and 16.7-15 refers to Him as another counselor. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit who's going to come as another counselor. Counselor. Now, the New Testament uses two Greek words for the word another. The first one is the word heteros, and that's a word from which we get the word heterodoxy, false doctrine. And the word heteros means another of a different kind, another not of the same kind. But that's not the word Jesus uses. He doesn't use the word heteros. He uses the word alas, which means another of the same kind. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to send you another comforter, another counselor like me, after me. And so the Spirit expresses comfort and advocacy. He also communicates and speaks. Acts chapter 13 verse 2 says, the Holy Spirit said. What you need to know as a side note is that pretty much every time in the New Testament you see this phrase, and the Holy Spirit said, it's almost always a quote from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, or a quote from the Psalms in which clearly in that Old Testament passage it says, God said. So here you have God speaking in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament understood that to be the Holy Spirit speaking. But he communicates, he speaks God's word. 
He also intervenes on behalf of believers. Romans 8, 26. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses because we don't know how to pray, do we? And the Spirit Himself intercedes with words that are too profound for human language, groanings from the Spirit. And He also has various emotional states such as being grieved or bringing joy. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 14.17 says, for the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. Very often when you find the word joy in the New Testament, it's directly associated with the Holy Spirit's work. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He brings the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, doesn't He? And then also He's the object of betrayal and deceit. Acts 5.3, Ananias and Sapphira have deceived the Holy Spirit, and Peter has to confront them, and he asks, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he is also the object of human blasphemy and betrayal. Matthew 12.31-32, Jesus said, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. It's been a few weeks since Hurricane Ian first hit the shores of the Gulf Coast in Florida. Uh, My family lives right there, so I have been keeping up with how things have been going. I watched as the storm on the news just kind of hit. uh, It was supposed to hit Tampa Bay where, um, in Clearwater, where my family lives. It was supposed to hit there, but it didn't. It it hit just below and then uh, went off into the central uh, part of Florida. And so I watched the whole thing with interest, and what I found was that here are these coastal towns that, and these coastal communities that are utterly decimated, and the heartache, the heartbreak that comes along with that is unspeakable. There, there are people on the news who are standing literally in a pile of sticks that used to be their home. And, and that sadness and that heartbreak, I watched it every day on the news quickly morph into anger. Those people became very angry, angry at insurance companies. Why? Because insurance companies will not insure double-wide trailers on the Gulf Coast that are right on the beach, built right on the beach. They won't do it. And then I watched the people who live inland, people who live in Orlando or Lakeland or inland Tampa, they are angry at the people who build these homes on the coast because their tax dollars now have to rebuild them. And now everyone is angry at the legislators. Everyone is angry at the governor, all this anger. And then it's an election season, so the guy running for the Democratic uh, governorship is angry at the Republican. The Republican is angry at him. You know what I noticed in all of that? No one is angry at the hurricane. No one's mad at the hurricane. No one's mad at the waters that came flooding into their homes, washing them away. Why? Because it's just weather. A killer hurricane just is a force of nature that does not possess a will or intention and therefore cannot express malevolence toward you nor mercy toward you. 150-mile-an-hour winds and surging waves cannot be appealed to. They can't be assuaged. You can't take them to court. It's just an impersonal force of nature. People who crash in airplanes don't get angry at gravity. People who suffer loss at the hands of the elements cannot take those elements into court and seek justice for wrongdoing. 
You can't appeal to nature's conscience because the world and the cosmological constants and forces that govern the world, it's just stuff. Inanimate, immaterial, dispassionate, material stuff. But the Bible never speaks about the Holy Spirit that way. The Holy Spirit often, in the New Testament particularly, often is associated with the power of God, but the Holy Spirit is always spoken of as a person with a will and an intellect and a desire and an intention. He is God, the Holy Spirit. Folks, we are clearly dealing with a person here. But remember, we said, by definition, God is the infinite, personal creator of the universe. And as such, if the Holy Spirit is God, then He must also share those infinite attributes. Just a few. The Spirit's attributes of divinity. These are the qualities or characteristics that qualify Him to be equal with God. The Scripture clearly affirms that He has knowledge of God's mind. 1 Corinthians 2.11, for no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, in that context, the analogy is this. No one knows your thoughts except you. Has someone ever accused you of thinking something you don't think? Or maybe you said something and they misheard you. Maybe they misunderstood what you were saying, and you have to stop them and go, no, 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 that wasn't what I was thinking. No one knows your thoughts except the spirit of the person that lives in them. And in the same way, he says, no one knows the thoughts of God except God, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. We also see that the Scripture affirms His eternal nature. Hebrews 9.14 says that He is the eternal Spirit. He's eternal with God. We also see that he's the agent in creation. Remember Genesis 1, 1 and 2. When God calls the universe into being and he calls the world into being, who is right there putting it all together? The Spirit is hovering over the waters. And we see his agency in giving life. John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life, Jesus said. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, for the letter kills, but the Spirit imparts life, the life of God to you. And we also see that He's the Lord, 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where, where is liberty? Where is freedom? Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, and the Lord is the Spirit. We also see that God's essential nature is Spirit, John 4, 24. Jesus said this to the Samaritan woman. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we must understand that when Paul tells us here about the power of God's spirit to live the Christian life that has now invaded the Christian with God's transforming presence, we are talking about the person of God. It's God's personal presence. And let's look at what the Spirit now does in the life of the believer. Number two, the Holy Spirit is God's transforming presence. So he's God, but he's also God's transforming presence. Number one, well, he tells us about three things here. The first one is this, the reality of our freedom, verses one and two. So he reminds us of something that he's already established in the first six chapters. He reminds us that we are no longer condemned. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now set you free from the law of sin and death. 
What is the believer's new reality? It is freedom in the spirit. Notice he says, therefore, the word therefore, what's it there for? The word therefore is to tell you in light of the aforementioned, in light of what I just said, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? In the future? Now. Is it in the past when we weren't Christians obeying slaves to the law in our mind or slaves to, to sin in the flesh? No, it's now. There is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit has set us free. And so he reminds us how he started this book. Remember Romans chapter 1. We were all condemned. Romans chapter 1, we were idolaters condemned in sin. And now the believer who has justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and has freely received the grace of salvation is no longer under that judgment. And we were before. Verse 2, he says, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The new law overrides the old law. Now, there was a law in place. What law is he talking about? He's talking about that decree. When God said, on the day you eat of that fruit from that tree to Eve, you shall surely die. And from that moment on, her, Adam and Eve, and their progeny, all of the people born into them, according to Romans chapter 5, we were born spiritually dead. And so that was a law. It was the law of death and sin. And now that law has been overridden by a new law that has been ratified in Christ's blood. The evil and injustice of the black codes, which later became Jim Crow laws in the early 20th century. Those laws institutionalized post-Civil War, a post-Civil War system of indentured servitude and oppression, and they were eventually overturned and ruled illegal by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and then the Fair Housing Act of 1968. One set of laws in the 60s overturned generations of laws that kept people in bondage and oppressed. And Paul is here telling us that the laws of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus overturns, nullifies the law that was in place, and it held you down. And it kept you in bondage and in slavery to sin. And he calls this the new law of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit. So the believer must now live in this new reality of freedom in Jesus Christ. Paul then recounts or reminds us of the reason for that freedom. He's already established this. He's reminding us the reason for that freedom. Verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his one and only son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us. There's a lot going on here. I want to unpack this for just a minute or two. Verse 3a, says, for what the law could not do, God did. Why couldn't the law do it? Because we learn in chapter 7, 7 that sin worked through the law to weaponize it to bring you death. Sin works through the knowledge, your knowledge of do not covet, the law, the moral law of God to bring death to you. And the law couldn't help you. The law couldn't bring the life that the law demanded. 
And he says, so what the law could not do, God did. Scholar Douglas Moo calls this a tidy summary of the basic message of Romans chapter 7. It's just a summary. And so despite its origins in a good God, the good and spiritual law could not rescue us from the captivity to the flesh. Again, he said, the law has, become, the law has now become an instrument in the hands of sin to bring death to us. It could only diagnose our condition. It exacerbates our condition. Notice Romans 7.10. Let's be reminded here of verse 10. It says, the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death to me. So the commandment doesn't bring life. It results in death. Galatians 3.21, he says, for if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, if there had been a law that God had given with the ability to grant to give life, then righteousness most certainly could be on the basis of the law. But it can't be. Why? Because the law can't bring life. The law cannot bring life. So the law by itself simply lacked the potential or the capacity to deliver life to the dead. This is why we need the Spirit. This is why our new reality is life in the Spirit, not under the dominion of the law. Verses 3b and 4a, he says it's condemned in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of human flesh. Why was it necessary for the Son of God to be incarnate in a human life? Why was that necessary? Why was it necessary for the Son of God to be embodied and enfleshed in the life of Jesus of Nazareth? Why did we need that? Because Jesus becomes our new representative. He replaces Adam. You see, Adam is your federal head, which means that Adam is your human representative before God. His guilt somehow becomes your guilt. It's strange. It's mysterious. It's weird. But because you and I are born into him, he represents us as guilty people before a holy God. And now in faith in Jesus, we have a new federal head. We have a new representative, and he's a human representative, sinless, spotless, lamb of God. And what did happen to this human representative? He was crucified on a cross as God's atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so this is how God did it. This sinless, spotless lamb of God, who is our human representative, crucified on a cross, is now ascended into heaven, presenting himself, presenting him his sacrifice, and when the Father sees his sacrifice, he says, well, that's acceptable then, because he's holy, because he's righteous, and because he was perfectly obedient to the law. So how then is the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in us? Because we are in Christ. Remember what he said in Romans chapter 6, you and I mystically we are in union with Christ. You and I have been buried with Christ in a watery grave in baptism. We have come up in resurrection life, partaking and walking according to the newness of life. You see? And now because we are in Christ, when God, listen, when God sees you, he doesn't see this sinner saved by grace. That's not what he sees. He can only see the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ's obedience to the righteous requirement of the law, which Moses said, if you don't live according to all of it, if you break one of these, you're guilty of breaking all of them. And Jesus has fulfilled the law. And now when God sees you, he sees a person who fulfills the righteous requirements of the law, not because of you, but because you are in Christ. 
and having recounted the reality of our freedom from sin's condemnation, the reason for our freedom, he then summarizes the results. The results, what did it result in? Well, the first thing he mentions here in 8.4 is a change in lifestyle. Life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh. That is to say, life led by the Spirit's desires, not life led by my fleshly impulses, my desires to do whatever I want to do and live under my own authority instead of God's authority. So it's a change in life, a change in mode. He says in verse 8.4, in order that the law's righteous requirements might be met in us, in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. What is all this walk talk? What is he talking about? This is just an analogy in the first century. This is the way the Jews speak. You know what the Pharisees call their teaching, the totality of their teaching? They call it the halakha. That word means the walk. Do you know what Christianity was called in the book of Acts before they had a name for it? What was it called? It was called the way. That means the walk. It's the walk. And this is the Christian life. The Christian life is a new walk. And that just means the pattern of living. We don't live after the pattern of the world we used to follow. We now live after the pattern of sound doctrine and the pattern of God's Word according to life in the Spirit. John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And how will he? Halakha. He will walk in the newness of life. So we have a change in lifestyle, change in our mode. But this change in lifestyle is made possible by a change in mindset. This is critical. Now we're backing into this, okay? It's a change in mindset. Look at what he says here. I want to show you this is setting our minds on spiritual matters versus worldly matters. So the bulk of our attention, setting them on God's word and spiritual matters rather than the things of the world versus Five and six, he says, for those who lived according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostility toward God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's frankly unable to do so. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the mindset. What is your mindset on? What are your thoughts fixated on? The writer in Hebrews says this, let us fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are your eyes focused on? Because that will drive, listen, that will drive the direction of your life. And anyone who has ever tried to teach a teenager how to drive knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because what do you constantly have to say? Keep your eyes on the road. Don't look over there. Look over here. Why? Because as soon as that boy starts looking at that pretty girl on the sidewalk, what does he do? He drifts over there. And you have to say, pull it back. Why? Because what you think about determines the direction of your life. What you think about determines the direction of your life. So now these people who are filled with the Spirit and have a new lifestyle, a new mode, a new walk in living, their mindset is that of the Spirit, spiritual things. Remember how Paul began this book, Romans 1, 21 and 28. I'll put them up on the screen. You can see them again. He says, for though they knew God, 
What did they know? They knew God. That has to do with the mental life. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to what? A corrupt mind so that they would do what is not right. A person whose mind is corrupted in sin, listen, cannot do what is right. If you're having a debate with someone who does not believe in Jesus and they affirm all the nonsense out in our culture, listen, they can't do right because they can't think right. Because this is what the Holy Spirit brings. He brings an enlivened mind. He brings a reborn, regenerate mind. It's a new mindset. So the unbeliever's mind, when you and I were not in Christ, Our minds were literally depraved and enslaved to corruption, the corruption of sin. And this change in mindset is due to a change in our position. This is actually what he started the book with. This is justification. Justification is a change in your position. This is what he started with, chapters 1 through 3. And this means that we have been brought from the realm or the dominion into the realm or the dominion of the spirit versus the dominion of the flesh. We read it at the beginning. We'll read it again, verses 8 through 11. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why? He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit under his dominion, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. So right there, he tells us what he's talking about. He's talking about a person who has the Holy Spirit or a person who doesn't. And he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ at all. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. What is the greatest power in the universe? What is it? It's resurrection life resurrection power. Listen, there is no experience of slavery greater than our enslavement to sin. There is no oppression. There is nothing you can experience in life that is greater in terms of enslavement than our enslavement to sin. And there is no greater power on display than the creation, resurrection power of the Holy Spirit bringing us back to life. Something that was dead, now alive again. And this is what Paul says is coursing through your spiritual veins as a Christian. This is what is running through you. Don't ever tell me, well, I can't quit. You could quit right now. Ow. I quit doing that. (laughs) You can quit anything you want. I understand. Some things come with a chemical addiction. If you're struggling with that, go talk to Pastor Daniel. Pastor Daniel will help you. He's been through it. But the power of the Holy Spirit is in your life, and there is nothing he can't resurrect. Nothing. And so he tells us, we argued last week, the believer now has gone from the enslavement to sin under the dominion or the realm of the flesh and now positionally is in the realm or the domain of the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. We have moved into a new country. 
your horizons are new. All things are new for you. Your prospects are new. We have gone from the old country to the new, from the old land to the new, and the new is Romans chapter 8. I'll end with this illustration. Driving your rental van from South Minneapolis to the inland or Pacific Northwest is an experience in extremes, especially midsummer. I, I can't imagine pioneers doing that on wagon train. Can, I just can't. I did it in a car, and I would never do it again. <laughs> the trip begins in the muggy and sweltering lakeland of central Minnesota, moving eventually into the barren and dusty flatlands of South Dakota that seem to go on and on as the vast horizon stretches out before you. Miles of hot pavement pass under your wheels, and there is absolutely nothing to see except the occasional bent tree and bent shack that's tilted in the direction of North, uh, South Dakota's unrelenting wind. Some of you have been there, I can tell. <laughs> it is, in a word, monotonous. And by the time you reach the other side of South Dakota, your anticipation has been long nourished by hours of seeing nothing in all directions. You reach the other side of the state, and finally, you see the Badlands. Oh, the Badlands. Have you seen them? Oh, they're bad. <laughs> they're beautiful, gorgeous, magnificent beauty, but still a picture of death and barrenness because nothing lives there. And you know when you have arrived in Rapid City, it is unmistakable. You feel as though you have crossed into a different state. What awaits you is one of the nation's most intriguing and fascinating monuments, Mount Rushmore. You park your rental van and groggy and eager and ready to be blown away. You step up to the edge of the viewing area, and there they are, forever enshrined in stone, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and, and the other guy. What's the other guy? Roosevelt. <laughs> no offense to Roosevelt. If he's your favorite, I'm sorry. And so you stand there for 30 minutes warming in the sun and marveling at that feat of engineering, but you have not yet arrived at your destination. As marvelous as it is to see green grass and trees and people and towns, you're not yet in the Pacific or inland northwest. So you press on, driving through Montana over a spectacular mountain pass. If you haven't done it, you have to do it. And at the bottom, you begin to see all that the northwest has to offer you clean, cold rivers, blue lakes, green mountainsides, sleepy little towns, and most of all, Wallace, Idaho. Because <laughs> that's where mom and dad live. And you've made it to the promised land. And Paul's letter has taken us quite the journey through some difficult terrain. It started out in the arid flatlands and the spiritual badlands of our bondage to sin in Adam. And along the way, it gave us some glimpses of hope. It did. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6. Mm. But then reminded us in chapter 7 of this depressing picture of a person who only has the law, doesn't have the spirit, longs to keep, but can't. And here we are in Romans chapter 8. And just as all hope began to fade, we arrive in Romans 8, the greatest chapter and the greatest letter and the greatest book ever given to man. And we discovered that the God who made us and called us and loved us has come by the Holy Spirit to invade our lives with transforming presence, and we have moved on from the old country to the new country. Our horizons are different. Our prospects are new. 
And no longer are we condemned. We are set free from the law of sin which brought us death. And God has done it without any of our help. And he did what the law could never, ever do. And this resulted in a new reality for the believer, a change in walk, walking according to the Spirit, and a change in mindset, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, and a change in our position. We belong to Jesus, not the world. Do you belong to Jesus today? Or do you belong to the world? And we made it to mom's house. And we are never going back to South Dakota. Will you pray with me? The worship team comes back up this morning and our ushers are going to prepare for communion. Father in heaven, we thank you for this grand new reality that we find ourselves in. This amazing grace that saved us and brought us from the old country to the new. And as we discover it, as we live in it, as we experience it, life in the Holy Spirit, this new life in the Holy Spirit, Lord, our hearts want to pour out in gratitude, the very thing we were not in Romans 1 able to do. We weren't able to worship you. We weren't able to glorify you. We weren't able to to thank you for the abundance that you have brought into our lives. But now we do, Lord. We glorify you and we worship you and we thank you for all that you have done And as we gather as a family, as a Christian family around this sacred table and these holy symbols this morning, God, we want to be reminded of all that you have done for us. You told us that as often as we do this, we are to do it in remembrance of you, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We've come to this table to commemorate what you did, what the law couldn't do. We we remember that your son was sent into the world according to the promises made in the Old Testament, fulfilling your word. We We remember that he was embodied in a human life, Jesus of Nazareth, as our new representative. And we remember that he bore the wrath of God on our behalf, freeing us from everlasting condemnation and death. And he lived in perfect obedience to the divine law and imparted to us a righteousness that is foreign and alien to us, but it is ours by faith. Hallelujah. And he took the curse of sin upon himself so that we would inherit God's blessing. And now when you see us, you see his righteousness. And he confirmed the new and eternal covenant and gracious reconciliation by the shedding of his blood and the affirmation that it is finished. If you're here this morning and you don't know this, the work is done. The work on the cross is done. Christ has paid it all. And that is our confession this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.